And truly there is none like you, Lord. And our souls desire to bless you, God. And we thank you this morning that you've given us your word. And we desire to be addressed by you, our God and our King. And so we pray this morning that by the scriptures and by the help of your Holy Spirit, that you would address your people, Lord. That you would encourage us, God, that you would instruct us in righteousness. Lord, we give thanks today for your word. All the scriptures that are breathed out by you and profitable. And that's what we ask for today, Lord, that you would make this time profitable. That you would accomplish your purpose with your word. This is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, we're going to dive right in this morning. Genesis chapter 46. And I want to remind us really quickly of the context that we're about to jump into. We've been following the story of Joseph. And at this point in the narrative, the identity of Joseph has been revealed to his brothers. You remember that about a month ago. And after his identity is revealed, this chosen family in Canaan, in the promised land, is invited by both Joseph and Pharaoh, really summoned, to come and dwell in the land of Egypt until the famine passes. And that's where we're going to pick up this story in Genesis chapter 46 this morning, beginning in verse 1. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now one of the things that you're going to see about these two chapters of scripture. Is that these chapters begin and end with an allusion to the promised land. This is the land that Jacob was born in. This is the land that Jacob has sojourned in the majority of his life, the promised land. And with those opening verses, we see that Jacob is being called to leave the land that he has promised to inherit. And so I want you to try to grasp this morning what this call to, to go to Egypt would have been like for this patriarch, Jacob. Leaving this land would have meant leaving the, the land that was sworn to his granddaddy, Abraham. The land that was sworn to his daddy, Isaac. And the land that the Lord had already sworn that he would receive as an inheritance, both he and his offspring. But here's what we see in Genesis 46 is that not only Jacob, but all of his offspring, the entire chosen family is about to leave the land of Canaan. And what this would mean is that for about 400 years, as the story of Scripture 
unfolds, there would be no member of the chosen family in the promised land. There would be no child of the covenant in the land of promise for over 400 years. It would be abandoned. And so what we see happening at the beginning of of chapter 46 is Jacob is being called to abandon the promised land. You could say it this way. Jacob is being called to bury his plans, the things that are precious to him. He's He's being called to abandon these things temporarily, to flee to Egypt so that he can inherit this promised land forever. Or you could say it this way. Jacob is being called in Genesis 46 and 47 to walk by faith and not by sight. He's being called to leave the land that was promised to him and his offspring. They would have to leave this land because we're told in verses 3 and 4 that God has determined to make this family into a great nation. So as we come to the end of the book of Genesis, we're pivoting, we're making a transition from chosen family to chosen nation. From the family of Abraham to the nation of Israel. That's the transition that's being made. And I want you to notice in verse 3 that God is going to build this great nation. He is going to forge this family into this nation, not in the promised land. But God has willed that this, this nation be forged in the land of Egypt. Not in the land of promise, but in the land of affliction. This is God's way that Jacob would leave the promised land and flee to Egypt. And there he would be made into a great nation. And God promises to be with his servant. This is beautiful promise to Jacob. Not only is he called to leave the promised land and go to Egypt, God said he would go with him. God would go with his servant, Jacob. And so every member of the chosen family is about to migrate to Egypt. And we're going to pick this up in verse 5. And we have this record of the names of these individuals that are going to make this migration. Every member of Jacob's family. And this is going to be the very beginning of the nation of Israel. And as we read through this list of names, I want to mention two things. Fight to hear the word of God this morning. Fight to hear these list of names. This, this list of names fits under that category. 2 Timothy 3.16 of all scripture that's breathed out by God and profitable. And I, I want to also encourage you to apply that parable of Ronald Reagan as we read through this list of names and as I pronounce these names again and again, that you would trust your pastor, but that you would verify these pronunciations. Trust, but verify as we read through this list of names. Verse 5, Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father and their little ones and their wives and the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring 
he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi, the sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jason, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershom, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Ishakar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Zered, Elon, Jalil. These are the sons of Leah whom she bore to Jacob in Padam Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether his sons and his daughters numbered thirty-three. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shuni, Esbon, Eri, Arodi, Areli, the sons of Asher, Imnah, Ishvah, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber and Malkiel, these are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph, in the land of Egypt, were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asnath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On bore to him, and the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Bacher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Eha, Rosh, Muppin, Huppin, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel, who were born to Jacob, fourteen persons in all. The son of Dan, Husham, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shalem, these are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons and all. And all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now as we mentioned, these 70 men, they migrate into the, promised, into the land of Egypt from the promised land. And the point is nobody is left behind. This is all the members of the household of Jacob. And this group is the very beginning of that transition that's going to be made to the, to the book of Exodus, where the great nation now exists in the land of Egypt. In fact, many of those names that we just read are mentioned again in Exodus chapter 1. And so with this migration, the focus of the Old Testament, it temporarily switches from the promised land and the land of Canaan to the land of Egypt. And so the themes have been the patriarchs in the promised land, 
uh, building altars and calling upon the name of the Lord. And now we're making a transition in the Old Testament that now the focus is going to be on the land of Egypt and the building of this great nation. Most of us are familiar with Israel's slavery in Egypt, and that's going to come uh, down the road. But what they meet as soon as they arrive in Egypt is great blessing in the land of Egypt. God promised to go down with Jacob, and God blesses this chosen family. We'll pick it up again in verse 28. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph, to show the way before him to Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. And Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were in the land of Canaan, have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds, and all that they have, and when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. And so Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land. For there is no pasture for your servant's flock, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Now remember, in verse 4, the very beginning of this chapter, that God had promised to go with Jacob into Egypt. And we see God do just that. God goes with this chosen family, and God blesses this chosen family in a pagan land in the middle of a severe famine. And that provision that God makes for this chosen family comes in the form of the land of Goshen. 
You see that mentioned over and over in this passage. God gave Israel and this chosen family the land of Goshen. It was here in this patch of land that all the needs of this chosen family would be met. They would be richly provided for in the midst of famine, the land of Goshen. So this was a place of provision for the chosen family, but it was also a place of protection for the chosen family. And I want you to see this, that this family in the land of Goshen, this would be, um, they would be insulated from, to, to a certain degree from intermingling with Egypt in the land of Goshen. This was a providence of God that their occupations secure for them the land of Goshen. And it placed uh, both a geographic barrier and a cultural barrier between Israel and Egypt. A geographic barrier in this sense, that the land of Goshen was on the very outskirts of the land of Egypt. It's not right in the middle of the people of Egypt. It's separated to a certain degree. So the geographic barrier here. And not only that, there's a cultural barrier. When we find out that because these men are shepherds, the Egyptians don't want anything to do with them. We're told that they're considered an abomination to the Egyptians, unclean because of their trade, of their occupation. And so the providence of God has provided this land that's not only going to provide for them and sustain them, it's also going to protect them from intermingling with Egypt. This separation is going to allow this chosen family to maintain their national identity even though they're living in the land of Egypt. They're going to maintain their Hebrew language. They're going to maintain their Hebrew culture. Even though they're going to spend four centuries in Egypt, they're still going to worship the God of Abraham. There's going to be a separation that the Lord has provided in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And it's in this patch of land that Israel will be multiplied, multiplied from a chosen family with 70 male figures into a great nation that we're going to see in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus. In the following generations, Pharaoh is going to enslave these Israelites, but here he does the opposite. He greatly blesses Israel out of the royal treasury. Pharaoh is providing for Jacob and his family. And what we need to remember is earlier in the book of Genesis, God made a promise in Genesis 12 that anyone who blesses Abraham and Abraham's offspring, God promised to do what? God promised to bless them. He said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. God promised to bless those who bless the family of Abraham. And that's exactly what happens in chapter 47, verse 7, we'll pick it up again. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And, and Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, 
And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. And then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses. It's another name for the land of Goshen. As Pharaoh had commanded, and Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Jacob stands before Pharaoh here, and he declares that his years, the days of his sojourning, the days of his life, have been few and evil. Okay? They're few in the sense when he compares them to the years of his daddy and his granddaddy. They lived much longer than he did. And they're evil considering his sin and all the suffering that has marked this man's life. He was born with a struggle uh, from the moment of birth with his brother Esau. He lied to his daddy. He was forced to flee to a foreign land. He was cheated by his uncle. He woke up on his wedding night to having a different wife than the wife that he planned to have. He ends up in the land of Laban with four wives who are in this malicious birth war with each other. And Jacob's caught in the middle of it. Just a little while later, his daughter Dinah is raped. He's lived long enough to see one son after another fail morally. He watched Simeon disqualify himself. And go into his father's wife. He watched Judah go into a prostitute. He he suffered the pain in his life of being separated from his beloved son Joseph for 22 years. He says, few and evil have been the day of my sojournings. And yet what this chapter, these two chapters show us. And that in the midst of this life that is marked By suffering, God has orchestrated a sweet providence in Jacob's life. He's separated from his son for 22 years, never thought he would see him again. And all of a sudden, they get to embrace and weep at each other's neck. And he beholds the son that he thought was dead. It's almost like he's receiving his son back by resurrection. It's a sweet gift from God, this reunion that God gives between Jacob and Joseph. In fact, Jacob is going to have 17 years in the land of Egypt. The final 17 years of his life is going to be spent with his beloved son, Joseph. And God even made that sweet promise back in verse 4, very beginning. He, He promised that Joseph will be the one to close your eyes. He's going to shut your eyes in death. This is a sweet gift from God at the end of Jacob's life. But first, this family has to make it through the famine before Joseph shuts Jacob's eyes. We'll pick it up again in verse 13. Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that he bought. And Joseph brought the money 
into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. And if your money is gone... So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of the livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh... And all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was so severe. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priest he did not buy. For the priest had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. And so Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt. And it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priest alone did not become Pharaoh's. Now Joseph used severe measures in his administration during this famine. How severe? Well, we're told by the time that he's done, all the money, all the cattle, all the herds, all the seed, and all the land belong to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And on top of this, we're told that all of Pharaoh's citizens in the kingdom of Egypt, they become servants. They become slaves to Pharaoh, tenant farmers. Uh, in this arrangement where Pharaoh owns the land, Pharaoh owns the seed. Pharaoh gives the seed and they return back to him a 20% tax on the land. Now, the situation in Genesis 47 is so desperate that not only do the citizens of Egypt gladly accept this arrangement, it's actually their idea. Okay, They come to Joseph not with uh, bitterness, but with gratitude. You have saved our lives, is what they said to Joseph. And they're the ones who had the idea. They're the ones who engaged the terms of even selling themselves in slavery. Verse 25, 
they proclaim that Joseph has saved their lives. And I want you to remember back earlier in Genesis 45. This is exactly what Joseph was sent to do. When he's revealed to his brothers in Genesis 45, he says these words. 45 verse 5, Joseph says, God sent me to preserve life. He was set in this position to be a savior of the land of Egypt. To be one who saves from death. One who preserves life. This is is Joseph's role in the land of Egypt. In this administration, this is how he keeps alive the royal family. The chosen family in the midst of famine. This is the God-ordained means that kept alive Israel in famine, And I want us to remember the progression there. That if Israel died, the chosen family died in the famine, the promises of God would die with Israel and with the chosen family. This was the means that God used to sustain this family who would ultimately be responsible for bringing forth the Christ who would bless all the nations of the earth. Which brings us to our final paragraph. In verse 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years so that the days of Jacob, the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me. In their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And so he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, as we mentioned when we first began, these two chapters, and that was quite a mouthful, right? These two chapters have both began and ended with an allusion to the promised land. And so our text this morning started with Jacob in the promised land fighting the fight of faith. The fight to trust God even when God called him to leave the land. And this text ends as Jacob nears the end of his life, still fighting the fight of faith in Egypt, specifically as it relates to God promising him the land. And so what Jacob does, this is an oath ceremony in the ancient Near East, the hand under the thigh and the swearing of the oath. And so what Jacob does in this final paragraph is that he makes Joseph, his son, swear an oath That his dead body will be buried like a seed in the land of Canaan, awaiting the fulfillment of the promise of God. So I want you to look back very quickly to Genesis 46 verse 4. 
that not only did God promise to go down into Egypt with Jacob, not only did God promise that Joseph would close Jacob's eyes, God also promised that Jacob would return to the promised land. God said, I will bring you back. Don't be afraid to go down. I will bring you back. And so Jacob, in this final paragraph, as he edges towards the end of his life, this is a picture of a man who is certain that Egypt was not his final destination. It was to stop along the way. God said he would bring his servant back to the land of Canaan. And so Jacob clings to the promise of God, even if the fulfillment of that promise would come after his body had died and rotted into bones. He said, plant my bones, bury my bones in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. His bones would be brought back to Canaan and God's servant would await his final inheritance. The full inheritance that would come to him at the resurrection of the last day. And so Jacob knows the promise of God. He's aware of the promise of God. And what we see is this man fighting the fight of faith. And even as he approaches the end of his life, he's preparing to die in faith. He's an heir to the promise and he knows it. He's living in the land of Egypt for 17 years. But he counts God's promise. He counts his inheritance as better than anything that Egypt could possibly give him, whether in life or in death. He says, take my bones back to the promised land. And so chapter 47 concludes with an old man of faith. An old man fighting the fight of faith, living and sojourning in Egypt, but not seduced in Egypt. He's, he's clinging to the promise of God as he nears the end of his life. He's planning to fall asleep in Christ. He's planning to die in faith, awaiting the resurrection of the last day. And so what we have is God was indeed with him. God was with his servant. While Jacob was sojourning in Egypt, he was blessing his servant, he was protecting his servant, and he was strengthening the faith of his servant, Jacob. Now this is our text this morning. And I want to mention three exhortations, and I want to give them to us from Genesis 46. And 47, I believe that this whole narrative, this whole patriarch narrative has many things to teach us about how we are to live the Christian life. And so I want to put these exhortations in front of my brothers and sisters. And so I want to begin here. Brothers and sisters, in light of Genesis 46 and 47, in light of God's dealing with Jacob and this chosen family, I want to remind you this morning, I want to exhort you this morning, do not live by sight, live by faith. Live by faith in the promise of God. I want to remind us this morning that living by faith is God's standard. This is God's commandment in His Word. This is what He expects 
of His servant. And, and we're even reminded in God's Word that without this, without this trust in God, without this faith towards God, we are told in Scripture that it is, it is impossible to please God without faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so if you desire to please the Lord, you need to be reminded, you need to learn this well, you need to, be, you need to remember this this morning, that we must walk by faith. We must trust in our God. And so I want you to observe this morning how God dealt with His servant Jacob. He took this man out of the promised land, land of Canaan, and he plants his servant in the land of Egypt, in the land of affliction. And I want you to remember this morning that our God deals with his servants likewise. Our God leads his servants in countless ways that make no sense to a pragmatic Worldview, a pragmatist way of thinking. He, he really does lead his people like this. He really does cause his people. They must walk by faith. They can't walk by sight. They must trust in their sovereign God. They can't live by what they see and what they understand. They have to live by faith. He's a God who takes you out of Canaan, the promised land, and plants you into the land of affliction. This is how he led Jacob. And so I want to remind you this this morning. Don't be surprised, brothers and sisters. Don't be surprised when your God, your shepherd, your father who is in heaven, when he calls you to bury your plans for your life and put your trust in him. To bury your plans and to trust him. To step out in faith and to trust your God. And don't be surprised if he calls you to do this over and over and over again in the Christian life. Why? Because the Christian life is a walk of faith. It's not a pragmatic walk of sight. It's a walk of faith. And I want to encourage you with this also. Don't be surprised as you follow your shepherd, your Lord Jesus, in faith and not by sight. Don't be surprised if you uh, happen upon, if you stumble upon these sweet unexpected providences in your life. Just like Jacob had this sweet reunion with his beloved son in the land of Egypt. He had 17 years with this beloved son. His beloved son, uh, he closed his eyes in death. That's a reminder that our God is good. Our God is good and there is sweet providence. It's unexpected gifts that await those who follow the Lord. And so I want you to ask yourself this morning, as you examine yourself in light of how God has dealt with his servant, I want you to ask yourself this question, where is God calling me right now in my life to walk by faith and not by sight? Where is God calling me to do this right now in my life? You see, the truth is this, is that some of us here, if not many of us here, we need to repent. Because we can identify places in our life where we're walking by our own understanding. Where we're, we're being guided way too much by what we can see, what we can identify, what we can plan. What we understand to be right. Rather than walking by faith. And trust 
and our Father who is in heaven. Walking by pragmatism instead of consciously, knowingly putting our trust in the Lord. Where in your life would God call you right now to walk by faith and not by sight? And I know that many, some of you, and God willing, more of you, you are being summoned by God. In the same way that Jacob was in this passage, that the Lord began to deal with this man. And all of a sudden, he had to uproot himself from this comfortable place. And he had to follow the Lord in a faraway land, away from everybody he knows, everything that he's comfortable with. And he had nothing but the presence of God and the faithfulness of God to sustain him. And some of you have been summoned just like that. To give your life following Jesus in a faraway land to be sustained and and fed by the faithfulness of God in a far off land. And this text would remind you this morning, if that's you, trust him. If that's you, trust Him. Yes, you should prepare in every way possible to serve the Lord in another land as a missionary, as a servant of God. But don't forget this. Trust the Lord. Yes, you need to prepare. Yes, you need to set things in order. But walk by faith and not by sight. Put your trust in God. Feed on the faithfulness of your God. However the Lord is dealing with you this morning, wherever you need to trust Him, one thing that we know is certain as we consider this passage is that Jacob was promised the presence of God. And he had to relinquish his plans, but he was promised something better than his plans, the presence of the Almighty God. And so however... The Lord is dealing with you wherever you need to trust him. The one thing that we can say for certain is that the presence of God in your life is better than every single plan that you have for your life. It's better. It's better. And that's what he's promised for his people. So trust the Lord. Brothers and sisters, walk by faith, not by sight. Psalm 37 Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. What a beautiful verse of Scripture. Beautiful imagery here. That you would make the faithfulness of God your friend. That you would befriend it. That you would dwell in the land that God has called you would be planted in the place where God has planted you and your friend, the thing that you would befriend would be the faithfulness of your God. This is a beautiful description of a Christian, the walk of faith. This is said in several other ways in other translations. The NIV says it like this, dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. In other words, eat the meals that your heavenly Father has provided for you. Or he says it this way in the New King James Bible. I love this. Dwell in the land and feed upon faithfulness. Feed upon faithfulness. Apply that to your life. What is God calling you to do? He's calling you to walk by faith. 
He's calling you to feed upon His faithfulness, that His faithfulness would be your nourishment and your strength. And so, brothers and sisters, make it your life ambition to trust in God, to walk with God, to live by faith. Because Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, without faith it's impossible to please Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Exhortation number two, coming out of this text of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, I, wanted to, I want to encourage you this morning. I want to remind you, don't love the world. Make Christ Jesus your precious treasure. Don't love the world. Make Christ Jesus your precious treasure. We're told that Jacob was in the land of Egypt for 17 years. In the most powerful and wealthy land on planet earth. Eating the fat of this land. Being cared for by Pharaoh himself. But like Moses who would come after him. Jacob considered the reproach of Jesus Christ as greater wealth than all the wealth of Egypt. You know, the way you could summarize this is that he was in Egypt for 17 years, but he wasn't of Egypt. He was in Egypt, not of Egypt. And that's the same thing that Christ has called Christians to be. Brothers and sisters, Christ has called us to be in the world and not of the world. To live and move in this world but to not be seduced by this world. In fact, in John 17, verses 15 through 17, Jesus prays for every Christian. This is so encouraging. Our high priest has gone before us, and he has asked this for every Christian. Not that we would be taken out of the world, And then he goes on to say in verse 17, but that we would be sanctified in truth, that we would be kept from the evil one and sanctified in truth. And I want to remind you of that call upon your life, the call of Christ towards us who live in the midst of this present evil age. It is not this. Christ is not calling you retreat, retreat, retreat. Run and hide, run and hide, run and hide. He's calling you, be holy, be holy, be holy. That you would be in the world, but that you would not be of the world. And so I want to encourage you towards that this morning. Don't be seduced by the things of this world, the shiny trinkets of this world, the accolades of this world, but cast your eyes Followers of Jesus on the far exceeding glory of Jesus Christ. For there is none like him. There is none like Jesus. There is none who can compare to Jesus. There is none who can satisfy you like Jesus. I want to remind every soul in the room this morning. Your soul was knit together in your mother's womb. And God did a holy work in your mother's womb. He knit you together 
And your unformed substance became a living soul, a living being. And the Lord God, when He shaped you, when He made you into a person, you were designed by God, listen, to be satisfied with nothing other than Jesus Christ. You were made for Him. You were made to be satisfied with Christ and not other things of the world. Your heart was made to love Jesus. The reason you have a tongue was so that you would praise Jesus. You have eyes so that you would gaze upon the glory of Jesus. You and everything else in God's creation, according to Colossians chapter 1, was made not only by Christ, but for Him. You were made for Him. This world is a cheap substitute to Christ Jesus. There is none like Him. And what that means is that we need grace. We need help in our hearts. We need grace to believe the promises and even the realities that God's Word declares to us. Like Psalm 16, verse 11. We need grace to believe this. That in the presence of Jesus, the Bible says, there is fullness of joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. Note that it does not say in, the pres- in His presence is a whole lot of joy. It says in His presence there is fullness of joy. And so the Bible presents this reality to us that in the presence of Jesus Christ is all joy and there is no joy to be ha- had outside of Jesus. Oh, for grace to believe that. That there is nothing I need outside of Jesus Christ. In His presence is fullness of joy. And at the right hand of Jesus, the Bible says, are pleasures forevermore. You were made for Christ, to be satisfied in Christ, to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus. When we have Him, we lack nothing. When we have Jesus, we have everything. And this is how rich the one is who makes Christ Jesus their treasure as they sojourn and pass through this world. Having Christ as our precious treasure, it sets us free from the cheap substitutes that this world offers us. And it allows allows us to say crazy stuff like, take my dead bones back to Canaan when I die. Don't stick me in one of Pharaoh's tombs. And don't you stick me in one of those pyramids. Take me back to the promised land. Plant me like a seed in the ground. I'm awaiting my real inheritance for the one whom Christ is their treasure. God is glorified With lives like that. Lives that treasure Christ more than this world. I want to give us a closing exhortation from the life of Jacob. And I want to exhort us this morning, every soul, that you would prepare to die in Jesus Christ. And I want to warn you this morning that it That if you don't do that, the Bible promises that you will die in your sins. If you don't prepare to die in Christ, you will certainly die in your 
sins. And so observe this man of God, the very last thing on the mind of Jacob, the very last thing on his mind is where his bones would be buried. Where his bones would be buried. And I've already mentioned to you, this is resurrection faith in the book of Genesis. He's trusting God for something to happen to him after he dies. It's otherworldly resurrection faith. And you see, there's one thing that's certain in Scripture. And that, that this life is not it. It doesn't end when you die. This world is not the end. We are told in many different places in God's word that a resurrection awaits us. Listen, there are no exceptions. Every soul who dies will be bodily raised from the dead on the final day, the last day. Jesus taught us this. In John 5, he tells us that there's going to be a resurrection of life and a resurrection of judgment. Both the righteous and the wicked will bodily be raised from the tomb. And we will face our judgment and we will give an account of our lives. Jacob, in Genesis 47, had prepared to die in faith. And in fact, Hebrews 11 verse 13 tells us that all the patriarchs, they did not receive the thing that was promised but they died in faith. They fell asleep in faith. They were looking for a heavenly inheritance. So we have the example put before us this morning by the Holy Spirit of a man dying in faith. Dying in faith. And what does that mean? That means that Jacob, because he died in faith, he's going to be raised to the resurrection of life. And he's going to receive the real inheritance. The heavenly inheritance. The eternal inheritance as a gift from the grace of God. And I want to leave you with this question. What about you? That's where he's headed. Resurrection of life. He fell asleep and, and died, died in faith. And he's headed to the resurrection of life. What about you? There are very few certain things. But this is a certainty. You will have a moment where you breathe your last and this passage would exhort you this morning, prepare to die in faith. Prepare to die in Christ. How do you do this? There's only one way. There's only one way to prepare to die in faith. You have to cling to the promises of God. This is the only way. This is the only way. Jesus said in John 8, verse 24, he said this, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You must put your trust in Jesus Christ. You must trust him or he promises that you will die in your sins. The only way to die in faith is to die trusting in Christ and none no one who dies trusting in Christ will be put to shame on the final day. And so I want to exhort you this morning to prepare to die in Christ. Prepare to die in faith. One of the stories that has affected me the most 
about dying in the Lord. And no doubt it's affected several of you that know this story. It's affected us the most. Involves someone who was a member of this church several years ago. This member has long since moved to another state. But he was a member of our church for a couple of years. And his dad's name was Alan Nunnally. He was a lifelong politician in Mississippi. And he, uh, at the time of this story, he was a sitting U.S. congressman in North Mississippi. This man had a, a reputation as a godly man in North Mississippi. A man who loved the Lord. Not just public religion, but a sincere fear of God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as some of you will remember... Alan Nunnally was diagnosed with cancer, a very serious cancer. And his son was a member of our church. And, and many of us uh, were, were there and around as they went through several months, almost a year, of his daddy fighting this cancer. And they couldn't, they couldn't beat it back. He was a U.S. congressman. He had the best medical care available to him, but he wasn't able to to stop this progress of this sickness. And he was fighting the fight of faith. And they were very hopeful for many months. But there came a time in Alan Nunnally's life where this godly man knew that he was about to die. And he was the first in his family to face that reality that he believed that this sickness was going to be terminal. It was going to kill him. He wasn't going to get better and live. He was going to die and, and, and be, uh, stand before Jesus Christ. And his son was a member of our church. And many of us will never forget when he, he told us uh, this moment where this godly daddy, he summons his children into this hospital room that he's been in for months. And he begins to tell them that he's going to die. That he's not going to get better and that he's going to die. And he wants it to be very clear to his sons. And he starts recounting to his children all the things that he taught them. And he said, I'm the one that taught you how to read the scriptures. I'm the one that taught you how to pray. I, I taught you how to walk with God. I taught you how to be a part of the church and, and to be a part of the public worship of our Lord Jesus. He modeled before his family that following Jesus is not this Sunday endeavor, but that it, it infiltrates every single aspect of your life. And he showed them that. He showed them that. He said, I've, I've taught you so many things. I taught you how to be a man. I taught you how to work hard. I taught you how, how to apply yourself in your studies. He told his kids that he was proud of them. And then he said, I have one more thing to teach you. And he told his sons, he said, I'm about to teach you how to die in Christ. I'm about to show you how to do it. I'm about to model it for you. That I'm going to go out of this world and I'm going to show you how to die in Christ. And I want you to think about what kind of mark that left on his children. That you have a man with his dying moments, his dying weeks, and he's, and he's, and he's fully conscious that he wants to go out of this world clinging to the promises of the gospel. 
I'm going to show you how to do it. I'm going to show you how to fall asleep in Jesus, how to be satisfied in Christ and not to cling to the things of this world. What kind of mark do you think that made on those that loved him? You see, this is a very similar thing that's happening in Jacob's life, that this man is about to check out of this world. And all of his family that's around him, he says, bury me in the land of Canaan. My portion is not in this world. I'm going to show you what it's like to fall asleep in Jesus Christ. And I want to I want to exhort us with that example. What a man, what a follower of Jesus Christ. What beautiful faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the otherworldliness of trust in Christ, the real inheritance, the heavenly inheritance. And so I want to encourage you this morning to make it your life ambition to cling to the gospel in the moments of dying that you would live by faith in Christ and clinging to the gospel and make it your ambition to die in the Lord, to die in Jesus Christ with that precious and beautiful faith that loses everything in an earthly sense and prepares to to receive your heavenly inheritance and to awaken to eternal glory, to fall asleep in Jesus and to wake up to eternal glory. Life. Let's pray. God, you are the God of faithfulness, Lord. And you've revealed to us in your word that faith pleases you. It pleases you, Lord. It glorifies you, God. You've shown us that you have a way of shepherding souls, of shepherding your sheep. So that we trust you. And God, we pray this morning that you would have your way with us, Lord. Have your way with us, Lord. Be glorified in this local church. God, we pray that you would would make us a group of followers of Christ that love you more than the world. That cling to you in life and in death. Help us, Lord. Pour out your grace on this local church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.